This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This week's poetry supplement comes after my favorite series to date, our series on F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. I mean, what a tour de force that whole thing was we talked about nihilism and symbolism and murder and jazz and gangsters and wealth (laughs) and ironically what there was not there was no love story (laughs) oh yeah Uh, which is what me and many other people assume is at the core of this but anyway uh, the whole book was a study in irony of course i'm an enormous fan of irony (laughs) do you like irony (laughs) ironically i do so, I mean, it was all a lot of fun. And this week we're going back to that same era. Uh, and we'll still have fun, but it will be a much darker f- nature, much darker fun. I don't know. I don't know what to think of this old T.S. Eliot guy. He's a, he's a very cryptic guy. Well, let me assure you, if you like irony, do you like irony? <laughs> Ironically, I do. He has something for you because he will not disappoint starting from... The title. Uh, he uses it quite a bit, as a lot of people do during this modern era. Uh, T.S. Eliot is a complicated person, and he's a very complicated writer. So for that reason, uh, we're going to have to extend this poetry supplement to two episodes. Oh I a, know. A I new really, precedent. <laughs> well, I tried to get in one, but... It's just not possible, and I can't leave out the juice because that's the fun part. So hopefully we can entice everyone to spend two weeks with us talking about poetry. I think we can make it fun, and this is a very cryptic guy, to use your language. Yes, (laughs) well, I, I stand by that description. I mean, even his citizenship is unusual and complicated. Um, he's a notable American writer born in the U.S., uh, but America really can't claim him, and uh, not just because he spent his adult life in Europe. I mean, lots of Americans have done that, but uh, he naturalized to become a British citizen. But not even just that, 
he became British among the British. <laughs> a leader. Yes, an authority on English, not American literature. Um, he appears in American literature anthologies, uh, but often uh, only this early piece. His most notable works belong in the British canon. That's expertise in two very crowded fields. I wonder if we resent that about him, <laughs> defecting like that. <laughs> I really, I can't even imagine attempting to do something that audacious. I know I'm no T.S. Eliot, but I feel a lot more comfortable when we're reading and discussing things from this side of the pond. I know the culture better, and I can understand American works a lot better. Uh, and even though I've lived, a, as you know, a large part of my life in Brazil and speak Portuguese and have read Brazilian literature, I don't presume to be an expert or to be Brazilian among Brazilians like he has managed to do. Uh, for me, there's just a difference in living in a place and being from there. But T.S. Eliot managed to become an expert in two cultures and was really able to discuss it's amazing to me the influence he had on british literature i mean he even elevated writers that today we take for granted as a, having always been famous like john dunn and they were not but uh of the influence of t.s Eliot, and he devalued people that you know we've always held in in high esteem like tennyson so he asserted himself he became an expert uh, he was an editor, he was a publisher, he commented, he was a critic. Uh, that was his day job, actually. So his influence cannot really be understated, and it doesn't really matter for the most of us, for the, for the most part. But we're going to spend two weeks focusing on one poem, because it'll just kind of give you a little bit of insight on who this person was and why you probably have heard of his name, even though you didn't know anything about what he wrote, maybe. Uh, his writings are complex. They were influential. They're not like Gatsby in the sense that you can read them and, and enjoy them on one level, and even if you don't get all the layers. With Eliot, you read them, and you might just be confused. <laughs> <laughs> Like, the love song of J. Alfred Profrock is one of the easier ones uh, from my perspective. But it was so difficult when it was first discovered by the notable poet, whom most people would recognize this name too, Ezra Pound, whose most famous line was, Make it new. When he first read Prufrock, he said, I'm not sure what it means, but I can tell it's genius. <laughs> So if you're confused, that's when you know that's you're the right idea. Yeah. Well, I want to interrupt you there for a moment because as a non-literature person, I don't get that. I mean, why do people want to write like that? And why do people like it? I mean, uh, why make something difficult to read? And why is that considered good? I mean, in other areas of study, if the writer is confusing, isn't that really just considered poor communication? <laughs> Not better? Well, you would think it's really a kind of a good question. And Really something that speaks directly to modern poetry and maybe worth stopping for one minute to think about because that is a good question. We could spend more than one podcast really talking about what modern poetry is Please, and what not. it's trying to do. Uh, but honestly, okay, let's think about a piece of modern art, for example. I'll talk about my favorite because... 
Oh, I get to. So my <laughs> favorite piece of modern art is Guernica by Pablo Picasso. I'm not an expert at modern art, but I really like this piece of art. I've talked about it before because I went to see it in Madrid and it really made an impression on me. When I saw this painting, if you've seen the painting, you know, you don't know what you're looking at. It's confusing. It doesn't make sense. But when you look at it, and I'll never forget it, it was I saw this giant painting. I was in a room crammed full of people, and everyone was silent. And I just felt awe. I felt emotion. And I really felt, as I looked at that painting, the pain of the people in the Spanish Civil War. And that's what modern poetry is supposed to do. You don't have to understand it, just like I didn't have to understand Guernica. You can feel the emotion and feel what people are feeling or what they're experiencing. And what modern poetry tries to do more than anything else is communicate the emotions of modern life. What have we done to ourselves in the name of progress and technology and urban living? And most of it is kind of dark and lots of it is psychological. Freud influenced this movement really to a great deal. What's going on in your head? How are the things that we're doing affecting us? Our minds are fragmented. We have lots of different thoughts and these kind of things crisscross all the time. We don't think in linear motions. Lots of our thoughts are really confusing. They're bombarding us with images. That's what we call stream of conscious writing. It's confusing, but it's not because it's not trying to communicate a linear message. It's trying to communicate thought patterns and emotions. So the fact that it seems complicated (laughs) and difficult, but it's not, is that ironic? Yes, perfect irony. I'm glad we were able to touch on that. Uh, Well, just for clarification, I want to point out that when you say modern, you're not talking about today. No. Because ironically, (laughs) the modern movement has come and gone. Uh, We've even gone past the postmodern movement, which came after the modern movement. And uh, you're referencing um, a specific period that went from about 1900 to 1950, give or take a few years. And of course, what stands out is the overwhelming events uh, that overshadowed everything else on planet Earth during that modern time period were the two world wars, World War One and World War Two, and that ended with an atomic bomb, which changes everything. Um, uh, and if you made it through that, unfortunately, depending on where you lived, next you were hit with the genocides that came with communism and fascism and military coups and totalitarianism around the globe. And this was directly affecting every continent except North America. We got lucky there. But you're right. And it's not surprising that the poetry of this period would be dark in light of what you just said. But actually, the darkness that we're going to see, specifically in this poem, predates even those war years. There's a lot of disillusionment, a lot of loneliness associated with technology and modern life and the way people weren't living in community as before. And this was making people struggle regardless. And you heard a lot of these things when we talked about Kafka and Metamorphosis a few series ago. Well, T.S. Eliot comes out of that. And the way he writes is difficult, like I said, because the emotions are complicated. The world is fragmented. It feels fragmented. And in the case of this 
poem that we're going to read this week and next week, really mostly next week, he wants to communicate certain feelings of isolation, underconfidence, loneliness, cowardless, pointlessness, tremendous amounts of anxiety. And the truth of the matter is, for Elliot, it doesn't matter if you understand what he's saying, if you understand the story. He wants you to understand the feelings. And I think even if you're confused, you get that. Hmm. And I see he focuses uh, on all the fun feelings of human experience. <laughs> yeah, it's not romantic in that sense. Uh, this although, is no Jane Austen. No, here. although there is a, a an element of romanticism in there because it, he does talk a lot about the imagination. One reason I think this poem, or really a lot of modern poetry, is especially relevant today, specifically during our era, is because all the things that modern poets found wrong in the world, we've decided to rev up. <laughs> to increase them. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, instead of like saying, ooh, this made me let's, sad, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, instead of let's do less of that, let's we do more. We do more. I mean, think about COVID, and we can get personal here just for a minute, but We've watched over the last 15 months or so entire generations of students suffer extreme isolation opposed by all the COVID protocols they're living with. And never mind the insidious aggressiveness and social pressure living through social media world. Lots of kids and even adults, we're just living more in our heads can't get out of our own psychology. And this is poor J. Alfred Prufrock to a T. And it might even have been Elliot. When Elliot writes the poem, he's 26 years old. That's pretty young for a poet. But he takes on the persona of a middle-aged man. So Prufrock is not 26. Later on in life, when Elliot was talking about the poem, he says the poem is partly a dramatic creation, but also partly an expression of his own feelings. So in a sense, young Elliot, maybe he's worried he's going to grow up and become middle-aged Prufrock if he isn't already. Prufrock is too much in his own head, and unfortunately, he thinks of himself as a loser. He's too self-conscious in general. He's too self-conscious about his physical appearance. He's bored with his circle of friends. or they're, they're not even friends with the people that he knows, his acquaintances. But because he's so underconfident, he's paralyzed. He's stuck. Prufrock has no energy. He has no courage. He has no confidence. He has no imagination. And all of this freezes him to not do a single thing that would actually alleviate his own misery. He just rolls over. He does the, I'm going to roll over and die move. And what we're going to see is the poem starts with an allusion to hell. Always, always <laughs> a great start. I mean, uh, that does sound like we can relate to every bit of that. I mean, so much of the COVID epidemic especially has left people too much in their own Virtual infernos, if I can use that idea, uh, to use Dante's illusion that that Elliot does select, and uh, and Elliot didn't even know about the paranoia we created with Instagram filters and Snapchat videos, <laughs> and the ability to smear anyone at any time to millions of people for any reason, real or imagined, for anything you've you might have ever done or said to anyone. I mean, even a close family member for as long as you've ever been on Earth. I mean, what would Elliot? 
have said about that? Yeah, when you put it that way, <laughs> how do we survive? Well, it is kind of dark. It makes me wonder what the sequel would be if Elliot were around to write J. Alfred Prufrock Third. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know the end of Elliot's love story, his real love story, even his life in general, that Elliot was not Prufrock. He got over his fears of 26, and he was definitely not paralyzed into permanent paralysis. Well, maybe he was just writing his own cautionary tale. Reminding himself of, if I don't do, this is what I will be. (laughs) This is no to my future self. Yeah. Don't be this guy. Uh, Well, the emotions he expresses are not abnormal. In fact, they're really natural. I mean, everybody feels paralyzed with indecision at times, uh, and, and we fear those emotions. Of course, that's what Elliot does. He speaks for a modern man, and we'll talk about next week when we talk about his Nobel Prize acceptance and what they said about him. But uh, before we jump into all the literature, I do think it's interesting to get into a little bit of the biography, or I'll say the gossip. <laughs> gossip biography, <laughs> same gonna thing. going to be a little bit more gossipy than usual, because I've always seen these pictures of T.S. Eliot, and he's so austere looking. I would never have imagined the spicy love life he had <laughs> in his own way. <laughs> it's no uh, rock star, but, you know, for a publisher poet. Yeah. Well, this should be good for starters. Interestingly enough, um, Elliot and I have something in common. We're both from the great state of Missouri. We're Midwesterners by birth. As I've said many times before, I'm originally from Kansas City, but T.S. Elliot is from the second best city in Missouri, (laughs) St. Louis. Well, do most people agree that St. Louis is the second best city in Missouri? Well, most in Kansas City would, (laughs) um, although some would rank it lower than the number two spot, not higher. Oh, I see. Well, sorry, St. Louis. He's incorrigible. No disrespect. I'm pretty sure this all goes back to sports. (laughs) That's true. Go Chiefs. Go Royals. But getting back to Elliot, um, his grandfather actually moved to St. Louis from Boston and Harvard Divinity School to establish the first Unitarian Church in St. Louis and to found Washington University, uh, which today, if you're from this area, we affectionately call Wash U. And it's an extremely prestigious university. And uh, so to use Fitzgerald's terms, um, the Elliots are one of those East Egg type families, (laughs) except they're from Boston, not New York. And his dad was president of a huge brick company and lots of money and lots of community prestige and always very proud of their New England roots. And again, way more prestigious than the flyover country roots. <laughs> so Thomas Stearns Elliott was born on September 26, 1888. September 26. That's two days after F. Scott Fitzgerald's birthday and Anna's. <laughs> oh, true, true. Uh, but Thomas Stearns, that sounds like a bank name. It really does. It? Uh, he is eight years older than Fitzgerald and 110 years older than Anna, <laughs> if we want to do the math. And he's the seventh child in his family, and he attended all private schools and unsurprisingly went to Harvard. Well, nothing to complain about there. Well, uh, you might think that, except apparently it was not entirely blissful. I mean, ironically, when I read J. Alfred Prufrock and see all the angst and the self-inflicted misery, it's interesting to think he wrote it in college, especially since the weirdo character J. Alfred Prufrock is clearly middle-aged. I mean, I just assume the author was as well. 
Well, he does claim that he wrote it in college, but I'm not sure that he finished it during his Harvard years. In fact, he obviously didn't. It wasn't published until 1915. So somewhere there's a lot that goes on in his personal life and his professional life, but mostly his personal life between college and when this poem gets published. And it had lots of edits along the way. Well, and, and one of them being the start of a world war. Well, there is that. <laughs> but during the years from the time he wrote the poem and when it got published, Elliot finished his undergraduate degree. He did that in three years. He started graduate school. Then he took a year off to go to the Sorbonne in Paris. He came back to Harvard, finished working on his Ph.D., but then changed courses right before he was going to graduate and decided to go back to Europe to study in Germany. Unfortunately, that was in 1914. Ooh, bad year <laughs> to be in Germany and to try to be a professional student. Um, I mean, uh, that's not exactly the best time or place to be in Europe if you're in the mood for touring. Uh, since July 1914 is when World War I, or the Great War, as it was called up to that point, began. No, it's not the summer to do your summer abroad in Germany. <laughs> Then that literally was his plan. Oops. True. So um, he went for plan B. He went to Oxford. Yeah, that's landing on your feet. That's good. And, and he attended school and that went well, but uh, he did make a misstep. Yes, he did make a misstep. He got married to a girl he didn't love, an English girl, Miss Vivian Haywood, in 1915. And apparently that could have not been more disastrous. And here's how he described it. And these are his words. To her, the marriage brought no happiness. To me, it brought the state of mind out of which came the wasteland. <laughs> wow. Well, if you know the poem, you know that it describes the entire devastation caused by world war. I think that's <laughs> so an not insult. A, not a good marriage endorsement for sure. It was miserable for both of them, and I don't want to get too off topic. Well, maybe I do, because, uh, you know, it's just interesting. Uh, we don't usually talk about this kind of thing, but I think in this case it's worth the exception. Of course you do. It's too juicy not to. Well, it's very unusual, and I'm interested in people's love lives in general. But in this case, if your breakout poem is titled A Love Song. <laughs> well, especially when said love song is about a guy who has no love, uh, which clearly he did not at the time he wrote this poem. Well, maybe he didn't, but maybe he did. His perspective on love might be a little skewed by the bad marriage and the analogy to World War One. I. I think those two things would do it. <laughs> and people at this time were... A little bit jaded anyway. I get that. Well, when you think um, World War One might have left people disillusioned, uh, it was 8.5 million combatant deaths as well as another 13, 13 million civilian deaths on top of that. I mean, uh, it's a complete expression of revenge and violence. This fully developed, really, in the most uh, technological, mechanized, and human and destructive form. So, yeah, not good. No, I, I agree. And I will say that Elliot speaks to those issues with power and emotion, and that's what The Wasteland is all about. 
It's really not a small reason why he won the Nobel Prize, but proof rock isn't about war. Proof rock is earlier. It's a dramatic monologue. And what that means, it's one person making a speech, but it's not really a speech. He calls it a love song, but it's not really a love song. And it certainly wouldn't land you a kiss at the end of any <laughs> date to hear these words. It's strange. But so is Elliot's love drama. So that's what I want to talk about first. All right. Well, let's do it. Well, you mentioned that Elliot went to France for a year. Then he came back to the United States to go to Harvard, which he did while he was working on his Ph.D. He reacquainted himself with a family friend, a girl named Emily Hale. Her dad taught at Harvard, too, and he was a Unitarian minister. So they were in the same kind of religious tradition. Anyway, this is where the strangeness comes in. Elliot fell in love with Emily. Let me quote Elliot here. He says this, I wish the statement by myself to be made public as soon as the letters to Miss Hale are made public. I fell in love with Emily Hale in 1912 when I was in the Harvard Graduate School. Before I left for Germany and England in 1914, I told her that I was in love with her. Now, that's interesting because this did not come out until way after he died. But what he's saying is, I was in love with Emily Hale right before marrying Vivian. It's around this time that he's writing Proof Rock. (laughs) Can we assume that uh, she didn't love him back? I mean, when was this public love statement made or released? So strange. First of all, to answer your first question, we have to assume something happened. But who knows what? We know he confessed his love to her, but we also know he didn't propose. Maybe he was just like Proof Rock and never had the nerve to make a move. Maybe he was going to propose, but she gave him some sort of vibe that she would reject him and so he didn't do it. I'm not sure. What we do know is what he did. He moved to Europe and impulsively married a girl he knew he didn't love. Hmm. I know. That doesn't pass the out loud test at all. But even after they got married, both of them knew it wasn't the right thing. She almost immediately had an affair with Bertrand Russell. But beyond that, in his words, Vivian was, as they say back then, nervous. Which for us, that sounds harmless. But being nervous in those days is not harmless. Today, we would say she suffers from mental illness. She was bipolar as well as paranoid schizophrenic and her condition was severe and it worsened until finally she dies in her 50s they do separate though although she thinks he was kidnapped but they never divorce all that sad and that's you know kind of understandable and not a story we haven't heard before but here's the gossipy part that really gets me uh, and kind of plays into the proof rock love story so here it goes in 1930 Fifteen years after marrying Vivian, Elliot begins to correspond with Emily again. She'd been in London. They'd had tea and things rekindled. (laughs) Oh, this sounds like a British romance in the making, which is always... Love over tea. (laughs) Well, understated, nobody saying what they mean. (laughs) Maybe so, because over the course of the next 30 years... He would write her 1,131 letters, and these letters were very personal, and Emily kept all of them. 
He claimed to be in love. Here's some quotes from these letters. Quote, You have made me perfectly happy, that is, happier than I have ever been in my life. And the only kind of happiness now possible for the rest of my life is now with me. And though it is the kind of happiness which is identical with my deepest loss and sorrow, it is a kind of supernatural ecstasy. He said this. Here's another one. I tried to pretend that my love for you was dead, though I could only do so by pretending myself that my heart was dead. At any rate, I resigned myself to celibate old age. <laughs> I don't get the conclusion there. But go well, ahead. he goes on like that for years. Let me say this. 30. That's not a small amount of time. And in his mind, over the course of these 30 years, after writing all these letters, he built her up into this daisy-like ideal of perfection. She was in love with him, too, because who wouldn't be after so many confessions? He confessed to her not just that he loved her, but he told her intimate things that he wasn't telling anyone, but that was surfacing in his work, and she was giving him feedback. She was, in some sense, people have said, an idol. He became emotionally dependent on her. So this went on and on and on until his wife died. When his wife died at the early age, 58, they could finally be together. And Emily had every expectation that this would be the case. So she, Vivian dies in 1947. Elliot would write Hale only 180 letters for the next 10 years. They kind of cut her off. And then to everyone's shock, 10 years later in 1957, he marries his secretary, Valerie Fletcher, who is 38 years younger than him. This is a blow that him, Emily never recovers from. She never saw or met Valerie. And his last letter to her was written a month after he married her. Emily was devastated. Of course. Uh, I mean, so no one in England saw it coming either? No, nobody. It was secret, not even in their office where they worked. So that's kind of crazy, but it's not even the end of the craziness. Emily's letters to Elliot don't exist because Elliot destroyed them all. But Emily kept hers. That was actually a disagreement on their part. Hmm. He wasn't all that excited about that to begin with. But he finally said, and let me quote him, As for my letters... They are your property, and their fate must be decided by you. And so she donated them to the Princeton Library with the understanding, because he didn't really want all that personal stuff out there, that they would only be opened 50 years after her death. Well, she died in 1969. Well, and this is the irony to me. I mean, the long-awaited opening of the letters happened on January 2nd, 2020, which was just last year. So this drama is still not over. I mean, what did we find out? Did he, did he confess to be proof rock? Well, that's the thing. People say that they don't disappoint, that the letters are awesome, and they reveal all kinds of stuff. But the problem is... Two months after the world gets to see these letters, 
COVID happens、mm. <laughs> and the library closes and nobody is able to get to them. Almost no one has read these letters. Nobody really knows what they say and no one has studied them. The secrets are not yet fully revealed. Oh, so、uh, we don't have a Netflix miniseries on it、no. yet. No.、Right? So, well, it, it just sounds like the drama never dies.、Um, well, before we get to Proof Rock, the poem, let's tell the end of the romantic drama. Does the marriage with Valerie work out? Well, we have to leave Emily alone because. You know, we can't get into her, but as far as Elliot is concerned, yeah, it really does. I think they were compatible. They had a good marriage. He wrote her a love poem every single week. They were happy. She managed his estate and actually did a really great job with it. She managed their finances during his life and his estate and everything Elliot related after his death. Well, what about Emily? Well, she was gracious, let's、Ugh. put it that way. She said this, and I'm going to give her this quote The memory of the years when we were most together and so happy are mine always. And I am grateful that this period brought some of his best writing and an assured, charming personality, which perhaps I helped to stabilize.、Hmm. Uh, does he ever explain why he never, never married her? He does, but not to my satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like his satisfaction. It's kind of strange. He says that he wanted to remain single and how some men just really want a surrogate Virgin Mary in their life. And that's what she was for him. Hmm. I don't think that's a line most women want to hear. I would say no. <laughs> I'm your surrogate Virgin Mary. Oh, my. Anyway, okay, so that's that story. So we can move on to the poem. Obviously, I've taken up too much time to explicate it sentence by sentence. That would be the right thing to do if you really wanted to get the whole sense of it. But I don't know that most people do, and we certainly couldn't do it in a podcast, not even two. But what I would like to do is set up the poem in a way that you can understand it, you can admire it, and hopefully be able to enjoy it. Even if you don't get the line by line analysis. So, we're going to give it a read. I'll let you read it and then I'll interrupt you from time to time, especially if I see your eyes kind of glaze over in utter confusion. <laughs> well, you've made the reading process really sound glamorous.、There. I know.、Uh, because I want people to be forewarned that it gets confusing and it gets confusing fast. We don't even have to start the poem. There's a preface, and the preface isn't even in English. The poem begins with a quote from Dante's The Divine Comedy, and the quote's in Italian. <laughs> the speaker in the quote is this poor guy named Guido de Montefeltro, and poor Guido is stuck in the deepest, bottomless part of hell, partly for dispensing terrible advice. Guido speaks with a flame that quivers when he talks. And he says that he would never tell anyone anything about himself if he thought it would ever get out because it's too embarrassing. But since people who go to that part of hell never get out, he feels he can be honest to Dante. <laughs>、hmm. So、uh, the parallels that、uh, Prufrock is also speaking from his own personal hell. And, yes. And doesn't think anybody will know his story because they can't see his hell. Except、yes. that. Dante does. I mean, I can see the irony already. Yes, Prufrock is exposed. Guido is exposed. That's it indeed. So, this is a poem about a man. 
He's created a personal hell that he can't get out of. It's about his isolation. It's about his embarrassment. It's about his lack of personal agency. Notice all that, and we're not even into the poem. We've already gotten two illusions. One's a classical illusion. One is a biblical illusion. Obviously, the classical illusion is the Dante quote. But in the Dante quote, we see a flame of fire, and that connects us to the Holy Spirit of God who gives voice to the apostles in the New Testament to proclaim God's words. So Eliot really minds this idea of using literature to explain literature. There are so many allusions. He's going to allude to more than one Shakespeare play. He alludes to passages in the Bible. He alludes to poets that people are familiar with, like Andrew Marvel and Robert Browning. And the more you know about the people that he references, the more sense his work makes and the more, I don't know, layers you can add to it, even if you don't really get the gist of what the words mean, you may understand the sentiment of the illusion. Well, I I was going to bring up at some point um, the famous declaration that Eliot made about himself. And this was later in life after he'd naturalized as a British citizen. So he said of himself, I am a classicist in literature, a royalist in politics, an Anglo-Catholic in religion. (laughs) That's true. And that is a famous quote. And you can see right there, Uh, First of all, that he loves the classics, but he respects longevity. I mean, classics are deep-rooted. The monarchy is deep-rooted, and of course, so is the Catholic Church. These are things that endure over time. And I will say that at the time that Eliot wrote Proofrock, he really wasn't even a Christian. He had been raised a Unitarian, but he didn't really have an active faith. All of that that you just read about was something that he developed over the course of his life. At the time of this writing specifically, and even, well, a lot during his early years, he was interested in Eastern religions. He was interested in Buddhism, and he was interested in Hinduism. And he didn't really land on the Catholic faith until much later. And this will come out, not really so much in this work, but if you're ever going to read any of his later works, and a lot of his literary criticism but actually i kind of like better than his poetry because i don't know i can read it without getting a headache (laughs) (laughs) elliot really sees literature and this is something that i take from elliot and i agree with him on literature is a conversation over time a back and forth with people that have been thinking about ideas for centuries sometimes longer than that He wants to talk to ancient writers. He wants them to talk to us and put their ideas in his work and kind of incorporate this dialogue into modern thought. This is what they think. This is what I think. This is what I borrowed. This is what I challenge. That's what's going on with all these illusions. So having said that, let's look at the title. Um, Shall we start with the historical illusion that takes us back to Missouri? (laughs) Well, we might as well, even though I wasn't really going to reference this one because I didn't even know about it. Well, most people wouldn't. Um, the proof rocks are not historical icons. In uh, fact, today they're completely unknown unless uh, you're walking around the Bell Fountain Cemetery in St. Louis where Elliot grew up. During Elliot's growing up years, there was a local furniture store called William Proofrock Furniture Store. Harry Prufrock, the son who ran a store during Elliot's life, was a, a master marketer and brander, 
back before the internet blew up that field. And uh, he would publish these giant full page ads in the local paper of the Prufrock family eating. They'd be eating a meal at a kitchen table that came from the Prufrock furniture store. They were working on a Prufrock desk and they were uh, local celebrities in in that they personified the middle class life in St. Louis and, and they were always in the paper. And so Elliot lifted their name and memorialized them as cliched middle-classers. Ouch. <laughs> and J. Alfred Prufrock is definitely middle-class. The way he writes the name is designed to sound like he's trying to be sophisticated. His first name is an initial. He goes by two names. He doesn't have a nickname like Huck or Butch <laughs> or Nick or anything like that. Alf. Alf. <laughs> the last thing we're going to talk about, though, is that maybe it's a nerdy-sounding name, if you want to think of it that way? The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, a modern, middle-class, maybe even upper-class, average guy. So once we establish the name, now let's go about the love song thing, and that's kind of the last thing we're going to have time to talk about today, because this is a love song. He calls it a love song. Not the kind Tim McGraw sings with Faith Hill talking about true love and played at weddings. When he calls this a love song, he's specifically trying to conjure up images of roses and chocolates and romantic beaches and serenades and vows of life together and blissful harmony. And then he's not going to give you any of that. (laughs) This is not what's in the love life for poor Jay Alfred. The love song for a middle-aged, balding guy with a name like J. Alfred Prufrock consists of the things in this poem. One-night cheap hotels, restaurants with sawdust on the floor. These are seedy images. They're lonely. Maybe they're sexual, maybe they're not, but they're definitely not intimate, and they're definitely not happy. Is that what we can expect from a love song in these conditions? (laughs) (laughs) Ironically? mm. Well, on that note, we will leave you thinking about that uh, as we await the explanation next week. Oh, well, I just can't wait for that. That'll (laughs) be great fun. I think so. Thank you all for being with us today. Um, We always like to encourage you to follow us on all of our social media and to check out our website at howtolovelitpodcast.com and recommend us to a friend. You can even text an episode to them. Thanks for being with us. Peace out. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.